0: hey guys welcome back to better from the ground up and today we are going to talk about farming and the environment every morning when you get up you run up the flag says balanced nutrition and you salute it every morning that's what i'm here to do today that's my strategy there's no magic program for everybody it's about identifying what's most limiting and fixing it so it's amazing what the crop can do when your nutrition is squared away and everything's good and adequate and balanced Hey, guys, it's Cody Goins, and let's jump into sustainable farming practices and how they impact our agricultural fields. We're going to talk a little bit about how our farming practices impact our soil quality and our topsoil and just how it affects our soil overall. So one of the most valuable things that we have, and I would say the most valuable thing that we have in agriculture in America is our farmland Um, in, in America, period. Uh, one of the most valuable assets assets is our our soil Um, we have very rich soil we have the ability to produce uh, pretty abundantly and the the value is not necessarily the crops that we're producing it's the soil that we have to use to produce those outputs so almost every civilization and history um, that that is no longer in existence you can trace it back to the fall of agriculture for them due to um, unsustainable farming practices such as uh, tilling the soil so much that it basically turns it into an unproductive desert land um, irrigation water that's super high in salinity and, and ruins the soil so there's lots of lots of history of civilizations coming to power and and eventually meeting their demise because of very unsustainable farming practices so I want to talk about that and I just want to point out um, how important it really is We talk about sustainable farming you hear the word sustainable getting thrown around all over the place today um, you see it a lot but it, it's not just um, it's not just about, doing what's better for the environment and saving the bees and things like that there's there's a lot more to it than just that so just understand that that our our nation as a whole relies heavily on our agricultural productivity and our soil is is the key resource for that so let's jump in a little bit further and and talk about some of our farming practices and how they impact our our soils and our soil quality and our soil health so there's multiple different challenges that we face when we are trying to figure out what's sustainable, what's not sustainable, what's, what's the best, what's the most economical, right? Everything we do, we got to make a profit on. So we can't just do everything as sustainable as possible if it means we can't make any money at it. So I totally understand that. So one of the things that that we have to figure out is where is the happy medium here? What what's the balance of sustainability and profitability? And that's that's going to be different on every farm for every person, depending on where you're at, what you're growing and and what resources you have at your disposal. So a few things to point out first, though, is what happens when we don't. Farm sustainably. So there's all kinds of different issues, but a few key ones are loss of tw- topsoil, for one. So, topsoil is a precious resource. That's where most of our organic matter is, that's where most of our biology is. And as we continue to till heavily, um, you know, the more we till and the more we leave our soil bare the more subject it is to erosion And I don't know the number right off the top of my head but I forget I forget exactly how many tons of topsoil we lose every year in America but it's a staggering amount. The thing about soil that that I want to, bring to the table today is how biology relates to to soil health and soil structure and uh, building organic matter rather than losing it so when you have bare soil soil was not created to be bare it was not created just to be bare dirt one of the worst things that we can do and i understand if you have severe weed pressure sometimes you got to do it Um, you know fall spraying spraying chemical in the fall uh, to make sure that you know um, you, you keep your uh, weeds at bay further into the spring. Uh, I understand from a weed perspective how, how that might be important, but our soil needs a living root in it, okay? So the soil is held together, not just by chemical bonds. All the bacteria and fungi in our soil are holding that soil together. So these bacteria and these fungus, the fungus that's growing throughout the soil, as they multiply and as they live in that soil, they are creating sticky exudates, glue like substances. Some uh, fungus produce glomalin. Um, there's other polysaccharides and things that are produced by roots and, and fungus and bacteria that adhere the soil particles together. So while bacteria are, are moving throughout the soil and multiplying, they're going to stick themselves, adhere themselves to soil particles. So when it rains, the bacteria doesn't just flush out of the soil, and obviously neither does the fungus because it's attached itself to those soil particles. And if you take trillions of bacteria and and th- hundreds of thousands and millions of of microscopic clay and sand and silt particles under a microscope and, and you look at that um, and you just visualize – Um, On a microscopic level, what's happening as those bacteria and fungus create those those sticky substances, they are they are also um, kind of a side effect of that, a positive side effect. So I don't know if side effects the right word, but one of the one of the effects of that is that the soil particles are also going to stick together and form small aggregates. What do the fungus and bacteria need, though, for their populations to be sufficient to help that soil structure? They need carbon, okay, and they can only get so much carbon from plant residue. They need carbon um, from living roots. So the longer, the longer we can have a living root in the ground every year. The better off our soil biology is, the higher our numbers are going to be um, of bacteria and fungi and things that that essentially you know hold the soil together. So a lot of people you know think, oh, roots hold the soil together. Well, there's some truth in the fact that roots help soil hold together and not erode, but also uh, a largely Um, undiscussed part of that is that those roots are feeding the microbes around them. They're feeding the bacteria and the fungus in the soil, and those are also helping hold the soil together in a major way. So when we till extensively, obviously we you know, if we're tilling, then then we've got bare dirt, we have, you know, eventually weeds are gonna start growing back, but for the most part you got a bunch of bare dirt. Fall spraying um, leads to a, a whole lot of ground having no living roots in it over the over the fall winter and spring so or early spring so the the longer we've got those living roots in the soil the better our soil is going to be doing um, as far as soil health and biology goes secondly as far as um, tillage goes it's 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 not the end of the world if you till your soil um, I, I'm not going to go that far but as far as maintaining topsoil and building organic matter, it's, it is obviously going to be the worst, one of the worst things that we can do. Um, so tillage is, is not our favorite thing. Fall spring is not our favorite thing. Um, and just understanding that the biology plays just as much of a role in soil and soil health and and maintaining topsoil as the plants do that that's a big part of all this when we farm intensively when we when we monocrop when we um which is you know most of the agriculture in America is monocrop um when we monocrop when we till when we fall spray all those things are just hurting our biological um, numbers, uh, our, our biological, like our populations of fungus and bacteria and our diversity. So over time, you take a soil that's really healthy, let's say that it hasn't been farmed in in 100 years or, or however long, it's been in CRP or, or something, it just hasn't been farmed, hasn't been disturbed, hasn't been tilled, hasn't been fertilized. Um, that soil uh, is going to have All the bacteria, all the fungus, all the protozoa, lots of nematodes in it, um, all these things that help soil stay alive and healthy and cycle nutrients and support plant growth and build organic matter. As you start to disturb that, you till it, you fertilize it, you spray chemicals on it, you're going to kill some of those organisms. And you're not just going to go kill everything just because you tilled it and sprayed it once or twice. but, But over the course of 50, 60, 70 years... You know, it's just this slow, steady decline in biological diversity. And one of the things that, that is the most important for a productive soil, the most highly productive soils in America and across the globe, and this has been proven in multiple different studies, um, the, the highly productive soils, the most productive soils have the most biological diversity. Okay, so I want to say that one more time: the most productive soils in the world have the most biological diversity, and that diversity is invaluable. And it's something that, as we monocrop and we till, and you know, we do a lot of these things that are really unnatural, um, we lose that diversity. So, whenever you look at uh, um, an ecosystem, you know, when I talk about soil biology, I try to tell people, look, the soil microbiome is an ecosystem, just like any other. There's all kinds of different species, there's predators, there's prey, there's a balance to be maintained. They all have their own unique individual roles to play. And when something's missing, um, that ecosystem starts to break down. Whenever we are looking at the rainforest for instance so the most the most productive ecosystem let's so we're talking about ecosystems let's look at a, a really productive ecosystem the most productive ecosystem um, in the world is the rainforest um, and I think the second most productive is maybe the coral reef um, but that I forget how many times more productive the rainforest is but the rainforest is insanely productive it it can it's just amazing the output that we get from the rainforest and anyone that's familiar with with this might already know um, where I'm going with this but what happens when they when they go remove all the trees uh, from that rainforest when they clear the rainforest and start using it as farmland what happens well, it's, it's super unproductive. It's terrible farmland. Um, it's not productive at all. There's, all, uh, there's poor fertility. There's, you know, there's all kinds of issues. It's not good. So how does that happen? How can a, such a highly productive ecosystem, you go clear it and try to farm it, and it's terrible? So one of the reasons is almost all that diversity in the biology and the soil biology is, uh, is in the top. So the top few inches of soils in general has the highest numbers of microbes, has the highest populations of fungus and protozoa and, and nematodes and bacteria. The deeper you go, the less biology there is. Um, there is still biology uh, deep in soils, but, but as far as the bulk of it is on the top. So when you go land level a field – um, scrape all the topsoil away or they clear the rainforest. Guess what? You scraped all that topsoil away, and the reason topsoil is valuable is because it's full of biology. Um, that's that's the only reason that it's so valuable. That's why it's productive. I have a book that, um, that I reference a lot, a, a soil microbiology and biochemistry book. Um, that was published back in I don't know I think 96 or something um, and, and one of the things it talks about in there is this fact that you know the most productive soils in the world have the highest biodiversity. so the rainforest um, you know is is one of those systems and the biodiversity in the rainforest is is unparalleled. Um, I think there's there's in a in one hectare, which is like two point four seven acres. There's going to be over 750 species of trees and over 1,500 species of higher plants in that one hectare. Um, That is incredible. And when you think about our monocropping systems where it's just one crop throughout the entire field, um, you go from literally the most diverse thing in the world to the least diverse. And, And that diversity is key. So guys that are – you know that's why crop rotation is so important, and that's why you know, things like cover crops are so helpful. And that's why multi-species cover crop, cover crop blends are so much better than just a one-species cover crop, a monocrop cover crop. It's because we're encouraging that biological diversity. So I want to explain that a little bit further. When you have a corn plant in the ground – That corn plant is is growing. Its roots are are growing and proliferating throughout the soil, Um, and you've got the plant is is photosynthesizing and it's releasing these exudates out the roots. It's it's breaking down, you know, phosphorus. It's breaking calcium and phosphorus apart. It's reducing iron from plus three to plus two. It's it's reducing manganese so it can take up manganese. It's doing all these things that a corn plant does to to acquire its necessary nutrients and to grow and to thrive. Um, well, there's only a certain, you know, number of chemical exudates that that those corn plants are are releasing. And so there's a certain group of species of bacteria and a certain group of species of fungi that are going to thrive um, on the root system of that corn plant, but those um, that's only a small fraction of all the microbes that are in the soil. So let's say you've got 100 species of bacteria and, and 20 species of fungi that just thrive on a corn root system. Well that does might be completely different species of bacteria and fungus that thrive on a soybean root system, or on a wheat root system, or on a canola root system, or on the root system of a watermelon crop, or, you know, you, you, you name it, every different plant species is going to encourage different groups of organisms to flourish, okay? So, if biodiversity is key, and if the most productive soils in the world have the best greatest biodiversity of fungi and bacteria and protozoa and, and things of that nature, then it only makes sense that we've got to feed all of those organisms. And in a monocrop uh, system, we, we just can't do it you can't feed that big of a diversity and that's one reason that we you know use products like we use that's why we use the humic and fulvic acids that's why we use amino acids and kelp extract and fish emulsion and you know we want as many different carbon sources as we can get and and that's why we develop our products the way that we do because you know you want that diversity you got to have that diversity so you tell me at the beginning of the year which microorganisms your plant is going to need the most tell me which, which bacteria is it going to need the most. Tell me which fungus it's going to need the most. You can't predict that. You have no idea what's coming that year. When you uh, start planning your program and planting your crops, you have no idea what's coming. You don't know if it's going to be exceptionally dry, exceptionally wet, exceptionally cloudy, exceptionally um, you know hot and humid that year. You have no idea what's coming. And, and every different Environmental condition, you know, that plant is is going to need to call on a different type, a different set of species of bacteria or fungi, you know, to help it. Uh, uh, the The fungus that helps in drought stress is not necessarily the fungus that's going to help um, in in waterlogged conditions with with low oxygen. Because you can't predict what that plant is going to need um, as far as assistance that year, you can't. You can't neglect to feed a a wide diversity of organisms. You have to have a plan in place. Um, In in our opinion, uh, you can do whatever you want, America. Um, You don't have to do anything that I say. But our recommendation is you have a plan to feed um, a wide diversity of organisms, and that is lots of different plant species and/or lots of different carbon sources uh, being applied um, to the plants in the soil every year. Just, just want to. Try to tie that all together the best I can for you. So just try to remember that biodiversity is key. We need highly diverse soils to have highly productive soils. Um, if you want to make money, you got to be productive. Um, you, you're, you have to have um, you have to have solid output. And the one of the best ways to ensure that is to work on your biological diversity. Climate change is another thing that comes up a lot. Um, and I don't I'm, I'm not um, I'm not an expert in climate change. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in climate change. But if, if it really is getting warmer every year, then that's just that much more support that our crops are going to need from those microbes in the soil to help them mitigate that stress. So that's just one more thing. Um, that we can keep our keep our mind on you know if if global warming's happening, um things are getting more stressful every year, seasons are getting more unpredictable every year, then we need those those microbes in the soil, we need them even more so as far as greenhouse gases and carbon. Um, carbon cycles and things like that. I'm also not the world's leading expert on that, um, but I know a little bit about it. So when plants are thriving in the summer, in the summers here, if you look at the at the CO2 maps across the United States, you can see that there's not not near as much. Um, not near as much carbon dioxide being given off um in well maybe it's given off but the plants are sucking it up right the plants are using that co2 for energy so in the in the winter after harvest is all over and we've got all this bare dirt then then you know those gases uh the it, it explodes and how much not literally explodes but um <laughs> Not literally, but figuratively um, it, the, the the amounts of CO2 that are going off in the air are are huge. Well, um, where else could that carbon go? Uh, instead of going up in the air as carbon dioxide, where could it go? It could go into the bodies, of microorganisms, so fungus is one thing that harvests, um, you know, and may, and holds that carbon in the soil where it belongs, where the microbes and the plants can use it. In the winter months, when all that all that material is being broken down, you know, you've got a fungus that has a very wide C to N ratio lots of carbon very little nitrogen so as it breaks down corn residue and soybean residue and you know all this wide c to n ratio material um, a bacteria if a bacteria is breaking that down it has a low c to n ratio relative to fungus well so because that bacteria has not very much carbon in its body It can only hold so much carbon. The rest of it, it's going to gas off into the atmosphere. So when bacteria are stuck doing the job of fungus, breaking stuff down, they may physically be able to break down that plant residue, but it's going to be slower, and a lot of that carbon is going to be lost in the atmosphere. On the flip side, if we had the fungus in the soil, um, as they break down that complex carbon, guess what? They use it. They use that in their um, cell walls. They use it to grow. So because they they require more carbon, they, they're going to hold that carbon in their bodies. And that carbon, um, if it's a fungus, it's going to either pass nutrients directly to the plant in season, or a fungal feeding nematode, if they're present, is going to come up and pierce that fungus and and suck all the good juices and nutrients out of it. Um, and if that happens on the root zone, that nematode eventually is going to excrete waste, and that waste is going to be full of plant-available nutrients that go to the plant. Fungus could sequester a ton of carbon. And I, I'm again, I'm not the world's leading expert on carbon cycles, but as a general statement, the more fungus we have in the soil, the more carbon we can sequester in the soil. And most of our soils are very low Um, basically deficient in fungus and populations and biomass of fungi. So that's one of the things we focus on most in our company is rebuilding the fungal populations in soil because there's just so much that they do from carbon sequestration to uh, keeping soil intact, minimizing erosion and topsoil loss you know, um, but also breaking down residue. There's so much that the fungus can do that the bacteria can't or that the fungus is so much better at than bacteria. Um, and and we've got lots of bacteria in the soil. There's almost no soil that I've ever seen that has not enough bacteria, but there's tons and tons of it. Over 90% of the soils we look at have nowhere near enough fungi in them. Um, the other thing that I want to mention as far as fungus goes, when you're talking about breaking down that complex carbon and storing it in the ground, that's where organic matter comes from, okay? The reason that we can't build organic matter, I'm not going to say the only reason, one of the reasons that's important that we cannot build organic matter is that we don't have the fungus in the soil anymore. For fungus – um, for for soils to break down complex carbon and recycle it into organic matter and to hold that carbon in the soil, we got to have fungus. We got to have it. We got to get those populations up. And you know, we talk about uh, how much organic matter is lost every year. If you look at how much organic matter has been lost the last fifty years across the world, it's unbelievable to see the decline. Um, I can't remember exactly the percentage, uh, you know, a quick Google search would pull it up, but if you, you know, so, uh, we lose, I forget how many percent or points of a percent every year that we lose in organic matter, but over the course of 50 years, it's unbelievable. It's like, wow, we have really depleted our organic matter levels, and, and uh, a direct correlation is our populations of fungus. Um, those have dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. That is, when I talk about sustainability, um, it, the first thing I think of is biodiversity in the soil. And the, the, then the first thing I think of when I start talking about biodiversity is fungus. Um, so getting the fungus back in the soil is the first step in my opinion, but then we need to work on different species of fungus, you know, having good fungal biomass is one thing, but we need lots of different species of fungus, um, because they all have their own unique things to do. So, As far as, you know, the textbook definition of of sustainable farming is just farming in a way that maximizes the use of our resources, especially our non-renewable resources. So what are some non-renewable resources that we have? We have... Fertilizer would be one, um, and, and I, I don't know exactly when when it's predicted to happen, but eventually, you know, supposedly the, there's a limitation in how much potash we can mine. Um, eventually, we're going to run very low, and when we run very low on potash or phosphorus, um, when, if those mines do start running low – um, then guess what's going to happen? The cost is going to go through the roof. That that'll happen one day. Um, they might legislate it away before uh, the mines actually start to run low. Um, and and I don't know. Maybe that's just a conspiracy. Maybe they'll never run low. But. Um, As far as – even if they're not, uh, the legislation is certainly going towards restricting our fertilizer inputs, our nitrogen inputs, our phosphorus inputs, um, and there's no telling what what they'll think of next to try to uh, regulate. Um, But – for now, we know that there are certain states that are very limited on how much phosphorus they can apply. So what do you do when, when that legislation comes down? Um, what do you do when, when all of a sudden you can't put anywhere near the phosphorus out that you were putting every year? Um, what do you do? you got to have a strategy. Um, your strategy surely is not to just shut the doors and go out of business. Um, how do you get around that? So how does nature get around it? How do plants get phosphorus in nature without someone going and spreading fertilizer on it? So that is you know, largely mycorrhizal fungi. So the mycorrhizae in the soil, which is a fungus, um, helps us harvest that phosphorus and get it into a plant available form and pass it to the plant. So what do we have to have to have mycorrhizal fungus? Well, number one, um, the mycorrhizae spores have to be there. Number two, the soil phosphorus can't be too high, or the plant will never send the signal to initiate that relationship with mycorrhizae. Um, and number three, we have to have uh, we have to have the right conditions. The the mycorrhizae and the plants both have to have the right environmental conditions for that relationship to happen. Um, but um, the, the, the point is when phosphorus prices go through the roof or when it's legislated, um, one of those is going to happen. Um, I mean there's fluctuations every year, but what's the strategy? Um, what what happens when that's legislated in a way that we can't use anywhere near what we were using before? Um You need to have a strategy. You need to have someone that understands how we can get that phosphorus into the plant without actually necessarily spreading more phosphorus. Um, And that's very doable. Uh, We do it all the time cover crops are are something I already touched on a little bit but cover crops are a great thing there's some areas that guys are like I can't get a cover crop out by the time I'm done harvesting the ground is basically frozen and I'm just you know I can't do it Uh, okay that's fine you can't do cover crops it'd be great if you could and and I already talked about why a multi-species blend of cover crops is better than just one but I understand everything comes at a price so guys are like oh five-way blend that's you know that's so much more per acre than just throwing out some cereal rye or something like that. Um, and it is, but we are so hung up on short-term investments, and, and we're just really not thinking very much about long-term investments and you know what all these decisions are going to have. What's the impact of all these decisions that we make going to be 20 years from now? Um, we're very short-sighted um as a as a culture and as a nation and i'm definitely guilty of that myself but um but but we have to in my opinion start doing a little bit better about thinking long term again cover crops no till different carbon sources like humic acids amino acids kelp extracts fish emulsions sugars molasses um uh, you name it you know there's all kinds of different stuff out there the but the more we can do to feed that biology and and encourage that biodiversity that investment is is always going to pay us in the long term it may not pay every year in the short term you know if you go oh I put some humic acid out and I didn't get a yield increase this year okay um, you know there's there's lots of reasons that that could be there's lots of different things that impact yield but but I Guarantee you, um, the, all those practices are very good long-term investments. Um, we just are so hung up on measuring everything year in and year out, and making a decision based on just the last year of our experience. So, um, just please, if you if you ever if you ever find yourself with some time on your hands, just maybe put a little bit of thought into those long-term investments and and. What things are going to look like 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road um, if we keep doing things exactly the same way. Water management is another one that we'll talk about a little bit. And uh, there, are, there are a lot of different opinions and a lot of heated debates going on about these kind of things. But, but we do know um, that phosphorus runoff is, is largely responsible for the algae blooms in the Gulf. Um, which is where most of the legislation is coming from, and we don't. You know, I'm not going to blame that on farmers. I've heard people say, "Oh, that's all. That's all um, commercial lawn care and turf. Uh, you know, causes more more of a problem than agriculture." Uh, maybe that's true. I don't. I don't know. Regardless of whose fault it is or not, um, that's why they're legislating it. So when we have nitrates. In drinking water, and we have phosphorus in the Gulf of Mexico encouraging these algae blooms. You know, regardless of of why it's happening and who's at fault, it doesn't really matter. the The truth is, they're regulating things, and they're. I I don't foresee the government um, loosening up regulations anytime soon. Um, if I was a betting man, I would bet that regulations will just get more and more strict. Um, so the only reason I say that. Um, is just to say that we we have to start thinking about, okay, what are we going to do when they regulate this? What are we going to do when this is restricted? Uh, what are the strategies that we have in place to get around that and maintain productivity and profitability, even though they limit some of the things that we can do? Water management is not just about the runoff. Um, there's also irrigation requirements and restrictions. And, you know, there's, there's some areas uh i was in colorado last fall and they were explaining to me that you know their drainage ditches um they get measured and if there's if the water levels over a certain height they get this massive fine uh per day for basically overwatering, uh using too much irrigation um which that's we don't have that here where i'm at in southern illinois um to my knowledge but uh but i know that across the country there are a lot of lot of different restrictions um even on things like irrigation so how do we make the most use of that resource water is a precious resource and um you know my my favorite thing about um one of my favorite things about this topic is uh, there's a movie called The Big Short, and The Big Short is about the housing market crash. And at the there's a guy that predicted that housing market crash uh, before it happened in 2008, and um, he he shorted the banks and made buckets of money on on that whole thing. But he kept asking people like, hey, does anybody want to know? Um, Anybody want to know? He asked the FBI and all these other agencies, would you like to know how I knew this was going to happen? Um, They never cared to ask him how he knew, but they did audit him like three times. Um, So nothing shady there. But um, anyway, at the end of that movie, uh, it says that that guy, he doesn't invest on Wall Street anymore. The only thing that he invests in these days is – Um, it's all about water so his investments are largely um, about water uh, because he has the foresight um, to see that water is a precious resource and eventually you know water is going to be more of a limitation for us than the fertilizer is and other things Um, and that's maybe hard to wrap your mind around but it's a fact and so what do we do there um, if you don't have irrigation and you can't have irrigation or if your irrigation is going to be severely limited and how much you can utilize it, what are you going to do? Um, the best thing that I know of, the most you know, sustainable thing that I can think of is to increase your water-holding capacity of your soils, and where does that come from? that comes from organic matter. So the more you build your organic matter, the more you build your water holding capacity. And we just talked about it. What What do we need to build organic matter? We got to have fungus in the soil. We got to have lots of fungus, good populations, um, good amounts of biomass, and lots of different diversity, species diversity of fungus to be able to build that organic matter. So Um, The fungi – encouraging the fungi in the soil – through different carbon sources and food sources and cover crops and um, crop rotation and things like that. The other one that's huge is compost extracts. So we make a compost extract called Reset um, and it, we're very stringent in the way that we compost and we extract the compost um, that, that we make that extract. But it's full of, of thousands of species of bacteria, hundreds. Of species of fungus, lots of different species of protozoa, and beneficial nematodes, and that's that's one of the best ways that I know of to get all these organisms back in the soil where they belong is through a good compost or compost extract. Uh, the problem that we run into is it's hard to make. Um, it's it's very hard to make. You can't just go throw a pile of stuff out there and, and watch it break down for a year or two. Um, you know, most of the compost on the shelf, if you go get a 50-pound bag of compost from somewhere and you actually looked under a microscope and, and started assessing the biology in there, it's pretty dead. Um, most of the commercial compost is garbage. It's not really compost. It's more like mulch. Um, It's full of bacteria, and that's about it. Very few fungus, a lot of times none, um, not very much protozoa, no beneficial nematodes. So uh, compost is a loaded term. It has to be made properly. And it really, really, really should be evaluated under a microscope to verify that all the organisms are present in the right quantities and with sufficient diversity to actually get the job done. Compost extracts, composts, uh, you know, th- those are a great tool for getting fungus back out in the soil. And um, depending on where you're at, um, you know, in the world, that may be a very feasible um, uh, practice to adopt or it may not. So um, as with everything we talk about, um, everything's on a case-by-case basis. So those are those are just the main ways that I know to help our soil health and to um, – to be more sustainable, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that goes into sustainable farming. There's a lot of um, a lot of opinions, a lot of strong opinions um, on sustainability and what's best and what's what's good, what's bad, what's terrible, what's poisonous, what's not, what's you know. There's all kinds of debates um, and, and strong opinions, but um, I, I don't care to go too much into that. I just I just want to point out that sustainable farming is important, um, and and we have to we have to get off of the super short sighted um, mentality that that's prevalent in our culture, and I include myself in that statement. But just think long term. Think about the long term ramifications of doing things um, n- non sustainably, and think about um, you know. What things might look like, how things might look different in 50 years if we do get um, more involved in learning and understanding how to be better at, at implementing this some of this sustainable agriculture practices. I'd say the biggest barrier to sustainability and sustainable practices is probably – if I had to guess, um, and that's what this is. This is a guess. Um, my guess is that just a lack of understanding is probably what turns most people off. You know, um, I, I've had a lot of conversations about sustainable agriculture and biologicals and things of that nature to farmers. but you know there's a certain group of people that are advocates for sustainable, whether you call it sustainable, whether you call it regenerative, whether it's organic farming, you know, there's a group of people that, Are pretty condescending towards traditional agriculture. Oh, you spray, you know, you spread fertilizer and you spray Roundup and other chemicals. Wow, way to poison the earth, you know. It's like, well, that's a great way to uh, try to find common ground. Um, Just, just go insult somebody. Um, So that that seems pretty silly to me, Um, and and I think that's not the main reason, but there, that's that's a big turnoff to people, Um, and I don't blame them. I'd be Pretty ticked off if somebody told me that too, especially um, because a lot of the, a lot of that information is um, biased. Um, but anyway, so as far as sustainability goes, I think that I think that the more educated we get about it, the more we start to understand how soil is formed and how soil works and how nature works. Um, how natural systems work, I think the more that we understand all the moving parts of soil and soil health, and there are lots of moving parts to soil and soil health. It's extremely dense in chemistry. It's extremely dense in biology. Um, there's there's so much that goes into it. But I think the more we learn and the more we understand and try to understand all these aspects, you don't have to be an expert um, but there's so much information out there about um, about all these things. I think the more we learn and understand it, the more likely we are going to be to start to adopt some of those practices. So I think again, uh, just the, the reason that we approach things the way we approach things is you know knowledge is power and knowledge is is a very um, I think a very underestimated tool a lot of times and if you don't understand something you're not going to be very likely to do it um, or adopt it and, and I I understand that but I think if if we could do a better job at uh, at just diving into trying to learn about some of the things that we're doing I think everybody would benefit from that and as a farmer if your number one goal is to uh be as productive and as profitable as possible um i just don't think you can do that without learning at least learning a few things every year um and you'll learn things without even trying but trying to actually learn about soil biology and soil health uh and things of that nature i think that's an invaluable investment um that you can make with your time just to recap real quick um, Sustainability is a loaded term, right? There's a lot of debates happening. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of a lot of stuff out there about sustainability. But um, at the end of the day, we know it's pretty common sense that we got to make the most of our resources, um, and especially the non-renewable resources. We have to have a plan in place. We have to have some strategies in place for government legislation and regulation when it comes to fertilizers, Um, you know, whether that's the amount of phosphorus you can put out, the amount of nitrate you put out, the amount of irrigation water you can use, right? Like there's just regulations are happening and they're probably just going to get worse every year. So we have to have strategies in place for that. Um, And that's one thing that we bring to the table. Is we can help with those strategies on okay? How do we how do we raise a crop? How do we not lose any yield while reducing nitrogen rates? How do we not lose any yield while reducing phosphorus rates? You know those those aren't just easy simple things, um, uh, but but on, at the same token, they're not overly complex. So we we understand strategies for that. So what's the strategies um, that you have in place for if and when these things happen? And then just understand that sustainability um really really as far as soil health and farming goes in my opinion it boils down to soil biology and soil health and the most productive soils in the world are the most biodiverse soils in the world and that's what we're shooting for and there's ways to do that there's ways to make your soil more um, biodiverse there's more um, there's a lot of different things that we can do to make big improvements there so Uh, Please feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions on on any of the stuff that we discussed um, in this particular episode. Uh, Shoot me an email if you'd like. Get on our website. Go to Contact Us. Get on Facebook um, or um, however you want to reach out to us. Feel free. If you've got questions about this, if you want to talk more about it, uh, please feel free. I will provide you with as much information as I have and that I can produce for you. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you learned something today and uh, tune in next time.